Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of One Vision. Joining us today is an old friend, Paolo Cironi. Welcome back to the show, Paolo. Thank you, Theodora. I'm always happy to be here with you. Now, it would have been better if this is like over a glass of Barolo, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take it. We'll take what we get. Well, your knowledge of Italian wine is outstanding and makes me so envious on Instagram. Every time I see your post, I'm like, oh my God, I want a bottle too. Oh, uh, well, you know, you have to have some habits somehow. <laughs> that, that became my habit. <laughs> um, but first off, though, before I forget, congratulations on your latest bestseller. I lose count of, of how many books you have so far. But your newest one, Bangs and Fintech on Platform Economics. For those of us who have yet to get their copies, because, you know, we heard that there might be some logistics challenge, although it should be arriving soon. Can you tell us a little bit more about the book? Why did you want to write yet another one? Uh, what is the book about? And high level, um, what's next? You see, this book is, again, a synthesis of uh, an extended research and business experience worldwide that um, put me in front of uh, bankers, uh, fintech entrepreneurs, uh, regulators worldwide in every corner of this around planet. To explain a bit, I would just say that um, two years ago, um, a bit more than two years ago, I was listening to Mario Draghi, the former chairman of the European Central Bank, speaking uh, in the press room of the ECB to the journalist. And one journalist, uh, it was actually two weeks before he left office, okay, for Mr. Agar. So one journalist asked him if negative interest rates uh, would create the next collapse of the financial crisis. And the way Mario Draghi answered was very revealing. He said that, of course, banks would love to have positive rates, right, unquestionably. But it goes, there are other problems in banking that we need to consider, especially in Europe, like the cost income ratio, which is unsustainable, blah, blah, blah. And then he concluded, just saying that these macroeconomic conditions are the new normal. We stayed there for a while. So the difficulty of banks uh, to generate value for shareholders as well as clients uh, will remain uh, given the operations uh, that don't conform with the reality. So he said that what banks have to do is to adjust the business model to the digitalization of financial services. Now, he didn't say banks have to digitize existing business models. He said they have to adjust the business model through digitalization. So the business model comes first and it has to change. However, he didn't say what is this business model or what are these business models. So now the research unit of the European Central Bank came to help uh, one year after, as I was writing my book already, to answer this question. And they said that uh, basically banks, uh, financial institutions, uh, can exert market power if they excel in information and communication. And there is a tension between information and communication. Now, information is core banking that accommodates a payment and particularly the adverse selection, so the credit function. And communication is about the interfaces, which typically are human relationships at the position, fee businesses like investment management through the wealth management channel or insurance through the bank insurance model. Now, what they're saying is that this tension is at the level of technology as well as at the level of the business, because from a technology perspective, core banking is very expensive and it doesn't generate the value to the shareholders any longer after the price for risk. 
And communication is less, uh, if you like, a cost uh, intensive, but it's based on humans and we need to digitize this as well. So how do you do that? So now basically what they are implying and saying is that, well, banks need to develop a banking as a service infrastructure because they need to position the data and the insights of their core banking outside to um, nurture and feed uh, a different ecosystem on the judgment industries like the open banking and the open finance that then generate a new value, new revenues. And on the other side, they have to build the banking as a platform that enables them to bring insight on their banking offers, the capabilities of uh, fintech companies uh, and other partners in order to enrich the value proposition towards what is named the trusted advisory model or the merchant banking, if you think about corporate banking. So basically when I saw that, I thought, oh, that really corresponds to most of my research and work. So I was creating a banking reinvention quadrant that explains how basically to break out from the existing conundrum of banking business models. And I thought information will be one axis, the vertical one, and communication will be the other axis, the horizontal one. So by intensifying information with um, open banking, public uh, cloud infrastructure, so the open ecosystems, uh, banks can start uh, boxing out to create new business models in the outcome economy, you can think about the contextualization of banking experiences. And by intensifying the communication quotient, basically revising the principles of relationship management and plugging inside artificial intelligence to augment the human relationship way more than replace the human relationship, banks can also build the conscious banking perspective. So transform the well management relationship into something that aggregates the financial wellness of individuals and families. So then the Bank Innovation Quarter was created. That is the heart of banks and fintech on platform economies that identifies these two strategies for the platformication of banking from a business perspective, which we already see in motion, but needed to get clarity and to be systematized to become effectively thoughtful and effective in front of and in the mind of the bankers. And they are called Contextual Banking and Conscious Banking, which is the subtitle of the book. I love that. You managed to weave everything I want to ask you into that <laughs> intro of the book. All right. We can now do that deep dive. See, that, that is, that is the, um, the master, my friend. So let's go back a little bit. Um, before before we dive into in, into others, we are in the new year, right? Um, mm. I I I for a while I was measuring time elapsed since the beginning of COVID. I think I'm realizing I just cannot do that anymore. So let's I'll move on. Um, but in in the book, you wrote something, a word that I've been hearing a lot: unbundling, unbundling, rebundling, unbundling, rebundling. We've been saying that for quite a while now. But what you wrote. You say unbundling financial services is short term because it does not unlock sufficient values that clients are transparently willing to pay for. That is really, really important because if we kind of look back in the past decade and the changes that FinTech has gone through, it started with a lot of unbundling and creating very mini silos. And then the industry kind of has been changing a little bit. Now, looking back, seeing what you have seen so far in the last decade, knowing how the world has changed and still changing. What are some of the key lessons that we have learned or 
Has anything taken you by surprise? So I've been preaching for a while, actually, for all my total leadership time that unbundling is short term. And the reason is because if you consider the last 20 years of the Internet revolution, it is clear that platforms are winning the Internet revolution. So in the digital revolution, that has to be the same. LinkedIn is the platform for my business life. Facebook is the platform for my personal life. Amazon is the platform where I sell the books. Twitter is to be the platform for my Trump paranoia. The question is, where is the platform for my financial life? So it wasn't there. People were not building it. But now it is starting to appear finally as big tech companies, payment providers and banks are learning that what matters is to start bundling back financial services into something which is unique and differentiates that aggregates the life of individuals or enterprises. Now, this corresponds to a very important thing that people have misunderstood and did not consider thoroughly. There is the difference between the output economy and the outcome economy. Because with the unbundling, you focus on individual products, the steel product centricity. And products are basically losing their capability in financial services to generate value for clients and return for the shareholders. Outcome, instead, is way more important. An outcome requires an engagement model that is based on experiences because what you pay as a client is completely different than the product itself. I'll give you a little example of the difference between output economies and outcome economies, which is where a bank and fintech needs to succeed to be competitive. In the, suppose you are an automotive maker like BMW. So you work in the output economy. You're a linear value chain. What do you do? You have targets of selling millions of cars. So next year, BMW wants to sell 1 million of the new seven series, uh, seven series uh, uh, car. Now, those quantities. But what does BMW do when uh, they wanted to work in the outcome economy? Well, they partner with Mercedes banks to create ShareNow which is an app that enables one million citizens of Berlin to commute in the morning to go to office. That is the outcome you focus on. Now, what happens is that as you focus on the outcome, the client pays differently. But also, when you buy the car, if you realize that's not your car, you cannot just return it one week after and sell it and buy a new one. Very few people have the means to do that, right? But so, so you create stickiness. But suppose that you have an experience with your car sharing company, which is not good enough. It's a moment you find a better one and you switch provider. So when you work on the outcome economy, the effort you have to make to please the customer is way larger and way deeper. And that's an all changing mechanism. Now, what is the correspondent shift in banking and financial markets? A bank operating in, operating in the output economy, think about well management, is a bank that wants to sell $1 billion of asset under management of a certain monetary fund next year. Outputs, quantities of asset under management. A bank instead that wants to operate on the outcome economy has as a goal uh, basically the opportunity to help the clients, being families, uh, uh, individuals, uh, or uh, businesses to basically fulfill their personal, their financial, their business goals. So it's the journey towards the goal that matters. It's the planning exercise and that becomes very relevant. So it's the whole experience around that day after day 
that builds the relationship and needs to be remunerated in the platform economy. So the complexity of shifting from output to outcomes, if they're not well understood, keeps fintech and banks out of the winning league because they direct their investments into the wrong uh, direction, which is uh, trying to digitize products. Instead, they need to shift the mindset and learn what it really means to transform in the outcome economy, because that is where platform competition really plays a different game. Those that will be able to understand that and implementing will be the winners. need you to talk to my my bank uh this one very large <laughs> global bank i've been banking with for 30 something years i hope they can actually understand what it means um by shifting to to the outcome model you're talking about because they're very focused on transaction based and their transactions not mine and i would say me as a small business owner is suffering and I just don't have time to switch. Otherwise I would have done that. But it is a lesson that I think many needs to learn, not just incumbents, I think to your point, FinTech startups as well. I want to ask you something. Um, for those who, who know you and followed you for quite a while, you are digital nomad, professor <laughs> traveling around the world. I don't know, you're everywhere. Um, if you happen to, to um, have a chance, to meet Paolo and listen to him talk. For those of you who are listening, I would highly encourage it. Um, all right, Professor Paolo, here you go. Now, you've been traveling and talking to a lot of companies, uh, some of which um, you, you just mentioned in the very beginning, um, you've heard a conversation and that was part of what triggered you write this current book. When you take a step back and look at around the world, the different markets, we talk a lot about the, um, the United States, we talk about Asia, UK, Europe, um, and Latin America, Africa. There are many, many different ecosystems around the world. And one would argue they're in different states of change. Mm -hmm. What is the one thing that gets you the most excited with all of these different markets? How are they different in terms of maturity? And what do you think, which one will hold more promise in terms of that future world that you're seeing? Effectively, I've been traveling a lot uh, in the last years, uh, clearly not during the pandemic. And now it's more uh, a digital travel. So hopefully the metaverse uh, will be smaller <laughs> than the real world. So I can save time. But I think that we can divide the world into three macro areas without wanting to forget anyone. So sheer simplification. Now the United States, is where technology, digital technology was born. Now, China is becoming very competitive, very competitive. But let's say that digital technology was born in the United States of America. That's the focus. Europe is where a lot of regulation is born. And that's important that the Europeans need to harmonize the capital market union and the European economies. And the European Commission also has a, a strong accent on the protection of the final consumer or the final investor. But uh, most of the winners uh, of the fintech revolution so far uh, um, live in Asia Pacific, in particular in China and in India, because there the business models are born. So if you like my role in IBM uh, leading the uh, research uh, globally in banking and financial market and my role as an author 
is to understand which are these business models, knowing that what you find in India doesn't necessarily work in Germany, in Brazil, or in Canada. Understand that which technology can help these business models to grow, reminding always that not all of the technologies are at the same level of maturity. What you can do today with AI, you couldn't do five years ago, what you can do today with quantum is a fraction of what you could do with quantum computing five years from now. But I also want to keep, and I need to keep everything inside a regulatory framework that is always different in the various jurisdictions, because that is, if you like, the way you start building a solution that remains sustainable within a certain economy, a certain social construct. Now, if we think, therefore, of the business models, those that are more interesting to me that I can see popping up here and there also in the Western world are about building or bundling solutions which are directed to the facilitation of a community play. It's like Ron Shabley would call it community banking. I used to say that the banker of the future looks like the banker of the past, the things is closer to the community, hopefully without the sins of the banker of the past, but with the virtues of being close and part of a community. Now, if you see what is happening here, it means that banks used to be, for example, a bank linked to agriculture, not because they were doing something specific about agriculture, but because the economy around them was made of farmers. So they were the farmers bank, right? What now banks can do is to use their knowledge, their competence and technology to allow the community of the entrepreneurs and the businesses around them to work together in better ways by resolving on the platform economy their more stringent business needs, which are not necessarily needs about banking. Banking is always an afterthought, like is a facilitation of something else, is a means, is never a destination, right? And by doing that uh, and aggregating that community, they can start uh, plugging in financial services to eliminate the frictions uh, into that uh, uh, ecosystem interplay. And that will generate a trust and comfort in building new relationships and paying for accessing that platform that generates something that is very important. The moment you create a community bank or a community fintech on digital that services a certain need, you have no borders. So the farmers in you know, one of the middle states in the States of America may work similarly to those that are in the middle of France and so on and so forth, right? So it's easier afterwards to expand your operation to service larger communities which have the similar affinity, the same set of mind. Um, recently, uh, like nine months ago, uh, Jack Dorsey, um, the CEO of uh, Square, now called Block, if I'm not mistaken, decided to acquire Tidal. Tidal is uh, a very, 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 very small competitor of uh, uh, Spotify or Apple Music. And uh, the reason why Square, there is a payment provider, decided to buy Tidal is because he said that at the intersection of things, value is generated and we need to look at those intersections. So then he said, there is a community of artists that are emerging and they needed to resolve their problems in terms of producing the artwork, selling the artwork, funding the acquisition of the, the, I don't know, the, the, the instruments for playing the music and so on and so forth. So, because if I can help them, basically, 
resolve those problems uh, and I plug in a digital wallet and then I can basically you know, eliminate the frictions in terms of the way they work the one with the other, I will generate value. And the value will be rewarded because, of course, uh, they will be users of Square, uh, they will be start uh, consuming more and more financial services which are instrumental to their life. So you see, the product comes after. So the strategy doesn't start from the product anymore. The strategy starts from which is the problem that you don't allow as a small businesses to resolve in your business life. If I can capture that, then everything else is consequential because we are in a good relationship. So I see here and there in the world that this is popping up at different speed and intensity, but that is the most interesting place that I'm looking at for competition because that complies with a shift from outputs to outcome. And therefore the winners on the platform economies will come from those type of strategies. Bingo. Because at the end of the day, these businesses, a lot of these businesses, they exist to solve a problem. So what is the problem you're trying to solve and what value are you bringing to our society? That seems to be something that uh, quite a few forget every now and then. Let's talk about um, reasons. Let's talk about what you do. Let's talk about your habits. So in your book, you talked about going grocery shopping on Saturdays. <laughs> Um, that, that's, that's what I love about reading is every now and then here and there, you, you find out a little bit more about people, about their lives and what they do. I, I thought that was fascinating because you use that as an illustration of a concept that you talked about the pull versus push. And you had other examples, um, in the book that you talked about it, but why is it important for banking? Um, cause you referenced, for example, Amazon, um, in your book uh, on that particular concept and in that, what can FinTech and incumbents learn from it? As a matter of fact, uh, I inserted some personal stories, uh, inside the book, which is, uh, about those stories that shaped my mindset, right. And were a really moment in life. So the pull and push mechanism uh, wants to explain uh, one thing that is very important uh, and many banks and fintech uh, misunderstood. This is my iPhone, mobile technology, digital. Now, this is a technology of the demand. It's a pull technology. When people go on Amazon, they don't go there because they want to know what happens. They want to buy one of my books and maybe Jeff Bezos suggests another one. Okay. But they go there with a specific purpose. But most of the revenues that matter in financial services, knowing that below interest rate, uh, you cannot remunerate uh, the credit function and knowing that payments are becoming very competitive, squeezing the uh, margins a bit at the time, uh, operate in the offer-driven economy. So those products are pushed to you. So it's not easy to position an offer-driven economy onto a demand-driven technology, which is what I'm trying to address with this new book, Banks of FinTech on Platform Economies. Now to explain that, uh, why um, the way we make uh, decisions uh, in financial services as clients is different from the decisions we make or the way we make decisions in other industries like e-commerce. So reminding everybody that we can quote Amazon, but we need to do it with uh, um, attention because we are as individuals like two different people, okay? So it's like two different metaverse. I came up with this example. Now I am in Frankfurt right now, but my family is in Italy, in Milano. So. I typically travel every weekend and my role in the family is to do the grocery. My wife wants me to do the grocery. Okay. And I do that with pleasure. It's for the family. So every Saturday morning I go to the supermarket and 
as a good Italian, I get my pasta, I get my milk. Now I also get some sausages because I live in Germany. And uh, then I, I see an advertisement of George Clooney shampooing his beard with a new brand. And I'm like, hey, George Clooney is a good actor, right? Why don't I buy that shampoo myself? So it's pushed to me and I buy it. But when I go to the cashier, I realize that 95% of the products I buy every weekend are always the same, the same, uh, same skimmed milk, uh, the same strawberry yogurt, uh, and so on and so forth. Because grocery is a strong uh, pull mechanism, I tend to create habits, uh, and it is very expensive uh, for marketing uh, to convince me that there is another product. So you see the battle, okay, they started in the 80s with Procter & Gamble and all the other companies. Now, even though grocery is a pull mechanism, is demand-driven, and marketing tries to modify that, uh, we are not acting the same way when it comes to financial services. Uh, people that have money to spend, or the majority of people that have money to invest, uh, don't typically start Googling uh, if there is an investment fund, uh, which is 40% uh, equities from the US, 20% European equities, uh, and the remaining equities from China, but not those in Guangdong because they pollute and they are ESG. It doesn't happen this way, right? People tend to have conversations, they need to read about it, uh, they need to talk to people, to their family members, uh, to their friends, uh, they go to the advisor, and then in the end, uh, they tend to make a financial decision. So they're typically often driven because they cannot be self-directed, they cannot put themselves. This is an important consequence uh, when it comes to the design of a fintech that operates on the digital economy. And I discussed this, uh, I remember, with the friends of Ant Financial in 2019, the week before I published and presented in Davos my Financial Market Transparency book, which is my fourth. I was presenting the book in China, um, in Guangzhou, where there is the head office of uh, Alibaba. And I was having uh, lunch with the Ant Financial friends, and they told me that this is true, they said, 364 days of the year, their platform operates in a pool economy. So people go there, think about when you go on Amazon, and you search for something, right? So then the algorithm tries to relate with you. But there's one day in the year when it's completely different. So the way people behave, that means that one day of the year, Alibaba, Amazon is more a push economy. And that is Black Friday, 11-11, because you go there for discounts. So the power of the machine is, uh, you know, enhanced because you're more uh, inclined uh, to accept a different offer that we're not thinking about, right? But now, knowing that e-commerce is um, a pool economy, still, uh, even the people that built uh, the e-commerce world, like Jeff Bezos, had to resolve this pull and push mechanism at the beginning of their journey. And I'll give you the last example to explain. When uh, I was young, again, a personal experience, I built, uh, I had my brother, to build a, a startup, and they wanted to be the Amazon of Italy in the 90s. We had the best of Italy. We had fashion, food, furniture, and travel. So we thought we're going to make a hit. We didn't sell anything. <laughs> there was a flop. <laughs> it was very well designed. I mean, I loved our marketplace on the internet. Our website was cool, but we were not really breaking through. And I learned the reason when I heard Jeff Bezos in an interview on 60 Minutes, and the journalist asked him, what is Amazon? And he said, Amazon is not a distribution channel of books in the internet. Now, Theo, you're younger than me, 
But if your audience has my age, they will remember that Amazon used to be just a reseller of books at the very beginning. So the journalists were surprised. And Jeff Bezos explained, he said, the publishers are sending me letters complaining that I don't understand marketing because I allow users to post the positive and negative reviews of books. And they tell me, only publish the positive reviews so that we can sell more. Is marketing stupid, right? But then he said, they're wrong because they're not my client. He said, I am not a distribution channel of books on the internet. So that means a fintech, a bank cannot be a distribution channel of financial products, output economy on digital. So then he said, my role as Amazon is to advise the client of which is the best book to buy. Because he said, if basically people go on Amazon, they see the book, but you see, this is a book tale. They cannot smell the glue, right? So they cannot see if they really like it or not. So they are stuck in the decision-making process. So transparency, which I know needs to be controlled also for the reviews, is the element that enables them to trust and basically to be capable, to be capable of pulling. So now this is a huge mistake that many have been doing. They thought that digital meant digitize financial products so that you put them on a marketplace on display and people will come and buy them. Very, very few people compared to the potential market will be capable of doing that. Instead, resolving the pull and push mechanism on the outcome economy means creating all of those elements that allow the client to self-direct. So he said something which is very important. He said, once I resolve the motivation, I can plug in analytics if you like to play with them and to suggest why something else to create a new opportunities. So that means to me that data-driven banking is an important concept, but there's something that precedes data-driven banking, which is data enabling the client. We need to give back the client the capability of deciding and knowing responsibly what they can do with their financial life using digital technology. Once that is done, you can start, if you like, elaborating on the data-driven banking more so that you can start combining your interests and the interests of the client and put them together in something that really generate value for the large ecosystem. And, and this is uh, one of the key elements that is discussed in banks and fintech on platform economies. So happy for the question and invite everybody to go and check because it's a foundational lesson learned that we all need to remind to succeed. Absolutely. Absolutely. So for the new year, for those of you who are looking for a list of books to read, definitely do check out Paolo's current book, Banks and Fintech on Platform Economics, but also the old ones, because that the lessons learned in there, the concepts, they're not old. I think those are golden lessons that needs to be relearned and reminded. Uh, speaking of, in the very beginning of the conversation, you also mentioned a couple other things, contextual and and conscious banking now if we look back at 2021 or even before 2020 there's a lot of talks about suppress there's a lot of talks about how the west and europe and us wants to mimic the models that a lot of asian companies such as alibaba um, has created the concept of super app but as you said actually just earlier in the conversation you can't just take something that works in one ecosystem and plug it in 
to the other and expect it to work exactly the same. I would I would say it's similar for so perhaps or the embedded finance models depends on where you are in the market, depends on what people need and how you solve their problems. That looks different. But I want to go back to the question and, and the concept you talked about, contextual banking and conscious banking. How does that fit into how we see so perhaps need to play for consumers and also embedded finance model, which I see a lot of good in it to help people bring them services that they otherwise do not get from incumbents. So we mentioned at the very beginning that the banking intervention quadrant is at the heart of banks and fintech on platform economies. And is a map that allows banks and fintech to understand how they can break out from the existing business model conundrum. Now, on that graph, uh, you have the two axes, uh, the information quotient and the communication quotient. And you have uh, a bottom left area called the traditional banking and digital banking, which is low in information quotient, is not open banking, and low in communication quotient, is not intelligent relationships. So now, Accenture estimated that between 2015 and 2018, uh, almost $1 trillion were spent uh, in digital transformations. Uh, but mainly digital chrysalises were generated, not many butterflies. They are right, but I don't tell you why. So the banking elevation quadrant reveals you why. Because basically, only by intensifying the information quotient, the communication quotient, you start boxing out and you lead into contextual banking and conscious banking platform strategies. Now, the difference between traditional and digital banking and conscious and contextual banking is that most of the digital banks that we've been seeing around today still operate as a, a linear value chains. So distribution channel of offers, which are typically fairly segmented. So you have the manufacturers, could be capital markets or the asset managers. You've got the assemblers, which are some of the world managers and the distributors that talk to the clients and the clients buy. And at every step of the process, there are higher costs, so higher embedded commissions that the client pays. Now, this cannot work anymore. Irrespective of the shift to the platform economies, uh, the embedded fees and commissions are evaporating uh, with low interest rates, the competition from Vanguard, uh, the competition from FinTech on the payment system. So what happens here is that uh, we need to recreate uh, a different relationship with the client where the relationship is a product. However, you would never buy for Amazon Prime uh, if Amazon only sells books. You need to have many multiple things on Amazon to appreciate the value of everything. So you need to start bundling back into a different type of solution with a different intensity of information communication quotient, a variety of things which are not only banking and financial market solutions, can also be non-banking. And that's also important because the problem on digital is that you need to create a continuous engagement with the client. Now, you don't buy a mortgage every day, right? So the non-banking is relevant because it keeps on bringing people onto the platform and in front of you, right, to create uh, comfort uh, and trust. But now, what happens here is that uh, there are these two strategies uh, which are different in the sense that uh, when it comes to intensifying the information quotient, so opening to open banking, open finance, and inserting yourself into a judgment ecosystem, it is the opportunity, as my friend Brett King would say, to eliminate friction that makes banking contextualized. That means embedded into a different type of solution to generate new value. Now, 
There is a trick in this sentence, the concept of new value. Most of the banks in fintech that still started this journey thought that they, they could win transactionally in the open banking space. But that's not the case because if you are the guy that eliminates the friction, your value is not recognized by the friction elimination soon that is supposed to be standard. Now the value is on the all interplay on the platform economy on the new value that we generate because you orchestrate the community, interplay, you orchestrate an ecosystem. You can think about Amazon in this case. Amazon is considered a marketplace, but it's not. Amazon is a cloud company because 85% of Amazon revenues come from the product marketplace, but the cost of logistics is huge. So 60% of the operating margin comes from cloud services, right? So every basis point that Amazon can gain on the marketplace, when the dimension is too big and the complexities are too loud, they will want to win for themselves. So that's why they might start considering, as they are attempting in the UK by pushing these out of the marketplace to insource the payment mechanism, because if there's 100 basis point, they need to get that to justify the marketplace, right? So the, the reason why these players are getting into banking and financial market solutions, not because they want to become banks, but because they need to retain that value of elimination of the frictions that is essential to create a good experience, knowing that that is not the element the clients should pay for. The clients should pay for something else, the Amazon Prime, right, to stay there. Then on the other side, you've got the conscious banking. What happens here is that we said it is the opportunity to eliminate the frictions that makes banking contextualized that means embedded, to create new value, to unlock new value. But now, it is the need to demonstrate value when you are in a banking relationship. Knowing the client have to pay for accessing the platform, that makes banking conscious. That means transparent in front of the client. And that unlocks hidden value. That means we discussed the pull and push motivational gap, right? So the importance of relationship in shaping financial decisions of clients. Now, Bankers got used to clients uh, that had money in growing economies, uh, so with higher margins. Uh, so they really thought that the product was uh, everything that was needed to differentiate. In reality, most of the clients never really understood the difference among financial products. Now, there is hidden value inside the banking relationship uh, that is uh, buried uh, under a stratification of habits, uh, right, that conform with a different type of macroeconomic condition that is not anymore the new normal we live in today. Now, conscious banking means that uh, you need to demonstrate that to the clients the value of their relationship so that the client consciously and happily pays uh, for making that decision together with you. And this is really happening today. You see a lot of uh, uh, banks which are transforming towards well-management uh, uh, interplays. Uh, and uh, in these well-management businesses, uh, the most uh, advanced banks are trying to create uh, client fees uh, Okay, so fees on top, starting from, that replace the embedded commissions. The head of the planning, uh, um, the planning association in the US uh, three weeks ago said that uh, 10 years from now, planners will not make money through retrocessions and embedded commissions on products. The ETF will be for zero, put it this way. Okay, so they will have to be paid for that relationship. So the shift is happening. Banks are realizing and understanding that. UBS to enter the US market is providing portfolio management at zero cost for the client because they want to build a relationship and then be paid for a higher relationship, right? And this we see clearly in the strategy of Goldman Sachs and others. You know, for example, that 
UBS uh, is not considered a bank anymore by Futsal because last year they said out of the banking index because most of the revenues come from interfaces, not from core banking okay, information. So you remember what we said at the very beginning about the European Central Bank. So this shift is happening and this shift goes into the contextualization or the conscious banking to justify the fees. You're leaving me a lot of food for thought right there. Um, made me speechless again. I remember you did that last time. Before we wrap. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was. Um, I, I had, if you can actually peek into my brain, I had charts and, uh, and bubbles going through. Um, before, before I let you go, let's look towards the next two to five years or, or maybe even less. I don't even know how long of a trajectory we can actually predict anymore. Seems like the uncertainty is, is the word of the last two years. So taking all of the concepts that you just talked about, taking the shift that you said, it's already starting to happen. And we do see that coupled with where we are right now with the economy, with the challenges or opportunities, depends on how you look at it. What is next? for financial services. And specifically, I wanna pick your brain and ask you, what will this FinTech space look like? Because there was a lot of talk going back memory lane about how FinTech would eat bankers lunch. And then there was a lot of talk about what well, big tech's gonna come over and they'll take over. Well, all of that, scrap all of that. What does Paolo think the future will look like? So first of all, the future will look like a change in the organization to make this shift happen. And those banks or those fintechs that can operate with a different organization will be posed to succeed. Um, already Brad King in his foreword to my new book uh, talks about the different organization structure of end financial. Why does this matter? If there's one research paper that I love among the others a bit more that um, my colleagues in the Institute for Business Value of IBM published this year is one called uh, unlock the business value of every cloud, knowing that cloud is a foundational technology to foster digital transformation. And the reason I like it is because uh, it demonstrates that uh, if you invest in cloud technology in combination with end-to-end -end enterprise transformation, you can multiply the potential impact on revenues by 13 times across industries, but 20 times for banking and financial markets. Let me explain to you why this matters in this conversation. Suppose that you have $100 on the table, which is what you can gain to be rewarded for your investment in technology and in different business models. If you only do cloud by itself, you can get 5% of the money on the table. That's okay, it's 5%, right? It's $5, but $95 remain there, right? Now, five out of 100 is times 20. So how do you grab that $95, 95% of the money on the table? Well. We investigated statistically they need to do three things. You need to plug in data and AI, of course. You need to work with operational enablers like cybersecurity shifted to the left is a business precondition. But the most important thing, which weights almost 50%, is the open organization. Open organization means it transformed the culture and incentive and the way people work, platforms and ecosystems. And why is that? is because only by transforming the organization that you can shift from the output economy where your business is segmented into different business units towards the outcome economy when 
every product is functional next to another product to create that experience that the client is willing to pay for. And if you can do that, then you break the silosis in terms of data silosis inside the institution that enables also artificial intelligence to do way more than it is today because now everything is very constrained because the final business model cannot garner and harvest the value of the outcome economy as you're not operating thinking to be a super app or a community bank or an holistic solution. Therefore, the highest value spaces in the bank innovation quadrant are dominated by contextual banking and conscious banking. Let me explain to you with an example with the automotive industry again. So in automotive, uh, that multiplier is times four. That doesn't mean there's no value there. It means that uh, the, the relative importance of things like open organization versus cloud technology is different compared to banking. In banking, there's more gain, more pain, but definitely okay if you get the right pain, there's more gain to, to grab. Now, the reason is because uh, how does an automotive company works? Well, uh, a car maker works with auto manufacturers. They want to get the best in class Navi system, the best electronic. I know that you like a Formula One, right? And they might get the best artisan in Italy to find that the super leather for the back seat that they want to have in the special color. But in the end, when you go to buy a car, you talk to the car dealer. And what you do is that you hyper personalize your car by picking up uh, the leather seat you want, uh, the tiptronic you want, but you, you don't discuss with all of the providers, right? You don't pay to all of them. You have an all-in pricing. So the car dealer is like bundling everything together in front of you, and that's what you get. You live with the car, and the car takes you from A to B. So the experience is bundled in terms of your personalization of choices. Financial services should operate similarly, but they don't. Like, to go from A to B now in life, um, you need uh, a saving account. You need a payment mechanism. You need a mortgage or a loan. You need to take care of retirement. You need to make investment uh, of your money. You need to care about donations. The problem is that you keep on dealing with uh, the different providers inside the same banking group at different points in time. This jointly is a new KYC process. It's like a new relationship. But you cannot go from A to B in your financial life with one product only. You need them all. So now banks needs to build up this all-in pricing, which is asking you to pay for accessing these services. That means outcome economy. That means platform economies. So now to do that, you need to open the organization. You need to make people understand that the individual products are not at the center of the strategy anymore. The engagement of the client in the outcome economy in a world where margins on products is evaporating is the competitive landscape. So the organization allows people to see a different value and to position themselves in order to facilitate this transformation that will allow banks to remain relevant or fintech to gain their market share. Otherwise, that will not happen. So now what do I see on the fintech ecosystem? I really see that those which are capable of transforming the organization, not thinking product, but thinking clients, but not clients as the center of a marketing mechanism made of products. Clients at the center of relationship are those that will be able to uh, survive. This is, uh, if you like, um, the fate of uh, the venture capitalist world, right? Most of the companies you look at uh, will not be able to make it happen. The question is, if you can identify what those that will make it happen have in common, then it will succeed and you will get uh, you know, money for your pains in terms of investments.
And that is the billion dollar question. Thank you so much, Paolo, for joining in today. It's always a treat. Um, appreciate the insights and appreciate the tidbits of wisdom. And I have four pages of notes. I don't know what I was doing, but I was like taking notes. I am digesting, um, but it's, it's, it's a treat. Thank you so much for joining us again today. And for those of you, thank you for joining in another episode of One Vision. Do pick up a copy of Paulo's book or copies of his book. I'm sure he wouldn't mind. Um, and we look forward to chatting with you next week.